Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Green Lairds is a brilliant term. It gets us talking about this. It gets us talking about land ownership. Hello and welcome back to Local Zero. It's Matt and Fraser with you this time and it's a different sounding episode too. I was on the panel at a recent event discussing the so-called Green Lairds phenomenon that is having a massive impact here in Scotland. We'll explain that term properly soon, but it's all about land use, carbon offsetting and natural capital. The event was a partnership between the British Institute of Energy Economics and the University of Edinburgh and explored how the carbon offsetting market is evolving and how it is impacting local communities. This episode will contain sections from last night's chat and we're delighted that Magnus Davidson will be joining us to discuss both the event last night and his own views on offset schemes. It's worth saying we've got permission to put out last night's discussion in its entirety. It's on the podcast feed. Do check it out immediately adjacent to this episode and it's in your podcast player. Sadly, there's no Becky on this week's podcast, but fear not, you're in very safe hands with Matt and me. And as always, you can reach out to us on our dedicated Twitter handle. If you haven't already, go and find us and please follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with the discussions there. Also, you can email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you're very self-indulgent and you want to share some longer form thoughts. So Matt, how was the event in the end? Excellent. Yeah, good. Uh, I just about got the last train home. I made it um, to Edinburgh, <laughs> Glasgow. So there, there, there were a, few, a couple of sticky moments. Did have to run, um, but a roaring success. And actually, one of the first events um, I've been to, I don't know which lockdown we're now talking about, but it's certainly the first time I've been out in an auditorium full of people talking about stuff that I'm really interested in. Um, and it was great. The panel just... The panel were fantastic, the audience were fantastic, and there was really great energy in the room. Um, so delighted to be back in person doing this stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's so much to be said for it. It's it's a, a whole different experience, a whole different feeling, but just so much, so much nicer to yeah. not have that drain from behind the screen. So tell yeah. tell us more about the event itself. What were we yeah. covering? Who was on the panel? What were the key the key ideas? Okay, so we, we had a, a mix of panelists trying to provide an ov- overview, really, of 
what's happening, not just in Scotland, the UK more broadly, in terms of voluntary carbon offsetting. This is where it's not just corporations, it can be um, institutional investors, charitable trusts are either buying land or investing in land that's held by another landowner to do, do something in the way of carbon sequestration. That's sort of locking carbon into that mm. landscape. Typically, that is forestation, trees, but also we can see it's about you know, protecting and reinstating peatland as well, which is a really important source of carbon locking. And in terms of our, our panelists, we had representation across the board. So we had Professor Dave Ray there, who's been on the, on the pod a couple of times in the past, fantastic you know, climate scientist, knows his stuff absolutely about how we can lock in carbon, where we should be doing it, what we shouldn't be doing. He was fantastic. University of Edinburgh. We're also joined by a colleague of his, Kirsten Jenkins, also from the University of Edinburgh, who is a, mm. an energy justice and just transition scholar. So understands a lot about what is fair, what is socially just. Um, some very provocative points from her. Really, really good to, to hear that and get the kind of brain whirring. And we're also joined by uh, Elsa Rayburn from Community Land Scotland, uh, which represents community landowners. And we're also joined by finally joined by Stephen Young from Scottish Land and Estates, who's the policy manager there. They represented landowners more, more broadly. And yeah, it was really good, really good natured. I mean, it's a very, very sensitive topic, but we had a really, really good debate, actually. And nobody pulled the punches, but everybody left with smiles. <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's, a, good, it's a, a good range of views, for sure. And it sounds like it was a really, a really great discussion. And I think it, it is something that's gaining more and more traction these days. The offsetting in general, right? A lot of a lot of leveling of accusations of greenwashing through offset of are we really accounting for this in any serious meaningful kind of way? Are there then issues not just on the big sort of industrial or commercial side mm. of it with with companies buying to offset, yeah. but then what happens with with the land that's bought? Is it ever yeah. tended to in the way that it's promised? What happens to the communities around that land or on that land? The people yeah. around it, the wildlife around it. Big big questions and, and, that, and the benefits that are accrued from that land, you know, that if, it, if there's income, for instance, particularly for exactly. carbon credits, who, who benefits from that income? This is it. Who's best place to, to steward it? Who's best place to, to govern that? How do we monitor it? And how do we make sure that it doesn't become a massive driver of social injustice as well as a draining of, of natural capital and yeah. something potentially bad for the environment as well? Yeah. Um, we got our wrists slapped a little bit for calling it Green Leads, uh, the event <laughs> last night. I think to pique people's interest and get people... To the event, but they kind of knew what the topic and the discussion was going to be about. But it's an important point. If you, you've got to bring landowners along with you, and if using these potentially pejorative terms and, 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 and positioning them in a uh, almost as the bad guy isn't a helpful way in terms of opening that uh, that dialogue and, and fostering collaboration. So that was a, that was kind of a key topic. But we don't want to steal Magnus's thunder, um, <laughs> and there are lots of juicy. Um, uh, tidbits to get into uh, throughout the throughout the talk, but yeah, no, really happy uh, how it went. And as we we said, if you're wanting the the full thing, the full fat version of that um, discussion, you can. It's it's on the podcast feed uh, and well worth listening to if you've got an hour or so time, you know, in the car or in the kitchen, uh, put it on and have a listen because I, we're not going to do justice to every point. Um, and many were made. Yeah, to try and help us do justice though. And to help us debrief on the event, we are going to bring in Magnus Davidson. Magnus is a research associate with the University of the Highlands and Islands Environmental Research Institute. He has featured very briefly on the podcast before. And his work 
focuses on setting out a new vision for 21st century rural Scotland, which works for both people and nature and reverses centuries of depopulation and ecological degradation. He's also a director of Community Land Scotland, the organisation that is the representative voice for Scotland's community landowners. Right, thank you very much for having me here today, guys. I'm Magnus Davidson. I'm a research associate with UHI North Highland. And just for the sake of getting it out there, I'm also a director of Community Land Scotland. So you maybe can see where some of my interests lie. Well, welcome back, Magnus. This is your second time, I think, on the pod. Uh, how the devil are you? Very good, thank you. It's uh, yeah, been a busy week, but I'm delighted to be here today discussing these amazing issues, fantastic issues. Good stuff. And we're reliably informed, even though the event, as we're recording this, happened last night. You've had just a few hours to pick over the, the audio, make a few notes, uh, and, and thank you for doing that because it wasn't a, a short event. Um, so I just wanted to really get your first impressions, really. Did you hear what you expected to hear? Were there any surprises? What did you think? Listening back, there was a huge amount of consensus around that table from people who you could actually perceive as having kind of contradictory opinions or are taking opposite points of view generally because of the background or the organisations that they're there representing or working for. So that struck me and actually comes back to a lot of discussions I'm involved with on this issue of green layers and carbon offsetting that generally, unless you're one of the ones kind of financially benefiting from this mm. most people in the rural community whether they come from the landed sector the community sector the land reform sector all kind of view this with the same kind of eyes of skepticism the other thing that struck me was everybody around that table was incredibly intelligent on the issues and articulate and put across their points very very well that was really nice to see the professionalism there and i guess that professionalism also comes back to point number one i made why the 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 event went so well in terms of discussing these issues it's something that's obviously it, it is a contentious issue it's becoming more and more so a a popular sort of public issue as well it's breaking its way through but behind the scenes it sounds like beyond this panel from your experience that it's there is actually a little bit of consensus around it. Do you think the the controversy has been kind of blown out maybe a little bit? Or is it something that we're, we're thinking much more about working constructively rather than fighting sort of competitively about? I think there's a broad range of consensus across many, and again, groups who in the past maybe didn't see as eye to eye as they do on the issue. Mm -hmm. But I still think it's a very contentious issue. And there are sections of the largely rural community um, who are completely at odds with each other. It just so happened to be that the people we had around the table last night were number one, very good representatives of who they were representing, but also generally coming at this from the same kind of approach. But yeah, there, there, there's people from, from the, the groups that I work with, say in terms of the rewilding community, who have very different opinions from, say, the landed sector community. And again, it comes back to cash a lot of the time. If you're making a lot of cash out of this, you're going to have quite different views to uh, to me. <laughs> so, so Magnus, I think on that, so the panel was made up of four people, okay? If we'd have had 40 on there, maybe done a little bit more justice to re representing these different factions, what kinds of things might we have heard from these different interest groups or stakeholders? 
the need to decarbonize now is a big one that we hear. Let's throw social justice out the window because it's irrelevant when we're in climate crisis. Something I completely disagree with. But yeah, there's quite often the narrative that comes through particular conservation, rewilding environmental movements who just want restoration, offsetting, rewilding now and really don't care about the other issues. So they'll quite happily get into bed with the absentee capitalist so long as they're rewilding their land, for example. Other people who are very much kind of free marketeers when it comes to climate change or take that kind of centre-right or economic approach to climate change who absolutely see no problem in profiteering out of climate mitigation or climate adaption as well. Um, So these people who would be turning around and potentially saying, we have absolutely no problem with green lairds, let's throw our doors open in Scotland and let them come in. And they would use words like invest. Um, But yeah, so there's other angles here too, where I think on the further left on the political spectrum, you would have had a lot more denouncement of the, the, the green layered approach. Maybe some angles coming in as well, taking a bit more of an issue with, say, Scottish land and estates opinions on, on these. Um, mm-hmm. And countering some, coming in at some of these points around gamekeeping as well, and maybe disregarding the issue of gamekeepers and just transition. You and Alison at the in towards the end had some of the most amazing comments um, when he was talking around social, cultural, inter- intellectual capacity of land. But he alluded to gamekeepers being of the working class of the rural community. And if we're talking around just transition, these are the people we need to be talking about. We understand in an energy perspective what working class and just transition means. But you go along and you say that a gamekeeper is working class and they need to be up there when it comes to just transition for jobs, a lot of people wouldn't take you on for that. The justice side of it, the just transition side of it, is a frustrating one that, that any and a lot of the listeners who are working particularly across across energy, across climate, will know that actually we're at a point in the justice conversation broadly where it doesn't have to take a huge amount of extra time to do. We kind of know where a lot of the issues and opportunities are. But do you find in your experience that the framing around that just transition, because presumably those people who are even like super, super environmental or super free marketeer, presumably they don't want people to be losing out in the process. Are they quite receptive to the conversation in your experience? I think it's less mature than it is in the energy sector, much less mature. So you wouldn't be talking around largely and maybe more so over the last 12, 18 months, but you generally wouldn't talk about just transition when it comes to landed jobs. We are a bit more now. But there's also people out there in, say, some environmental groups who would not only have no problem, but take sheer delight and relish in seeing gamekeepers lose their jobs. And that is not something I'm really comfortable with. But yeah, the, the, the angle there is you would have some people who would denounce and decry an oil and gas guy losing his job but would sheer relish in seeing a gamekeeper um, lose their job. And it's an interesting one. When it comes to just transition, the gamekeeping aspect is so tied up in the landed gentry that you have this conflation of class that the, 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 the gamekeeper is associated with the landed class and that upper class. And it hasn't got the nuance to be able to dissect that actually that's a, a working class issue. Yeah, I, I think... 
point there around a just transition was brought up a number of times by Kirsten Jenkins at the University of Edinburgh. And I made the point there that we haven't really done enough homework yet or groundwork on what a just transition looks like. There are a set of normative ideals, her words, uh, bundled up within this notion of a just transition. And obviously normative ideals are very subjective uh, in the eye of the, the beholder. But Whilst, and there's some fantastic work being done by um, the, the Just Transition Commission on behalf of Scottish government on this, as well as other academics. But we're taking this notion of a just transition, which isn't co- completed. I mean, not that it would ever be complete, but it, it's not fully formed. And then applying it to this fast emerging and fast evolving marketplace in the context of natural capital and land. You know, when we were talking last night, there was a lot of, there was this quiet assumption that people knew what we meant by just transition. Yet actually that is very contested and very live. And, and your point there about the, the gamekeepers is absolutely spot on. You know, what what does that type of employment, those communities, what do they look like within Net Zero? I am someone that is fundamentally invested in the Scottish landscape as a, a Highlander, someone that grew up in a rural setting, someone that has a brother who works as a keeper um, and has just bought a croft and someone who lives uh, surrounded by a shooting estate and engages in very, very small scale farming myself. So it's really a debate that's personal and academic for me. So just to go back to the history of the just transition, to reflect on where that language came from and what it might mean in this setting, I think if we look at its origin, it goes back to a very different context. It stems for me from labour environmentalism in the United States, from a concern around chemical processing plants, unequal distributions and unequal recognition, um, and a sense that things fundamentally had to be better but also that that was strongly related to a labour force, that it was strongly related to a question of energy transitions that were happening and to particular sectors of society. That therefore had a sense that, you know, it meant rights and protections, it meant employment opportunities, it meant making sure that the new jobs that emerged were ones that were equally rewarded and that were equally rewarding. And it also becomes a piece of language that then starts to say, well, we're not just concerned about who we're taking on this journey, but who we can bring in in that process. So it's about diversifying the uh, participation in the future that we create. And in all of that, that is heavily weighted towards a normative set of ideals. There's a suggestion fundamentally that the future that we are creating is a low carbon and a more socially just one. But I don't think there's agreement on what those normative underpinnings look like, or at least not explicit enough discussion on what it might mean. So when we're having this debate around the table, I think we're taking that piece of language, extending it to new applications, extending it to new groups of society, um, and to place it in a land-based context where we're talking almost um, about community enrichment and wider social benefit, but where we really need to reflect more precisely on the definitions, the clear set of expectations that we have, the principles that we're working towards, and an indication of whose views are and are not represented. There's a lot of good work being done on how what a just transition looks like in the landed sector. It's just not been done in Scotland and it's just not been by academics. It's not been done by the Just Transition Commission. It's been done by indigenous groups, pastoralists from across the world via organisations like the Climate Justice Alliance and their set of just transition principles. And you look at some of those, or particularly all of those, and they're so applicable for Scotland, 
so applicable for the green layers debate, so applicable for the rewilding debate, so applicable for the offsetting debate. We in the Western world, and particularly in somewhere like Scotland, have a huge amount to learn from the global south, the land grabbing that underwent there post-2008. We have a huge amount to learn by just looking beyond their borders and looking how other people have done it. UK being a, um, a country of empire and a colonialist country, we obviously have to frame that and how we learn from those groups of people against that backdrop of history and completely understand that. But it's not to say that we can't learn from these groups of people and apply them in our own settings, just with this historical nuance. Yeah, quite quite right. And I think you know a big part of just transition is not just about roles that individuals play, that that sort of distribution of of power, um, but also the distribution of benefit. And this is something that kind of came up time and time again. There was a big question mark about the role of corporations in all this versus communities. And what, the thing that came up time and time again is, well, without communities, there aren't necessarily the safeguards in place for that income, the benefit from these projects, but also the control of these projects to be distributed more fairly. If there is if there is one individual making the key decisions and of a particular project, then by extension, that that one individual is a person who's going to benefit also from this. You're not you're not talking about the 200, 300 people in that community. How do we do this? How do we look at an offsetting project and say how do we hardwire communities into this process? Because at the moment, it's on the whole not happening in, in, in many high profile examples. There's a huge way of approaching this question, and I'll I'll, I'll answer it. My first answer will be how we shouldn't answer this question. And that is, and there was a lot of discussion yesterday about onshore wind. That is not the way we should default the discussion around um, community benefit from carbon offsetting. We have this, uh, we used to, less so these days, £5,000 per megawatt of installed capacity goes to a community group or an organisation or a, a, a committee who then... Um, distributes the funds. Yep. We all know how they work well some places and how they don't work well in places. That should not be a model for how we approach the question of community benefit. There would The developers, the landowners would love nothing more than to be able to say, we're going to give you £10 per tonne of carbon and ring fence it for the community. Yeah. That lets them completely it's, it's off. It's blunt the, yeah. and, and a simple tool, right? Absolutely. It completely allows them to wash their hands, lets them off the hook. We should be talking, I think Ilsa raised questions around shared ownership. So the default for me would be around community ownership of assets the land effectively being the asset. Also questions around community ownership of the resource, not necessarily of the asset. So the resource when it comes to the offset carbon, can they take ownership of that through things like community benefit societies that effectively buy the carbon from the landowners and then market it, sell it, um, aggregate it to something that's more attractive to investors. So whether it becomes charismatic carbon, whether it's just aggregated to a scale whereby banks are more interested in it, it's thousands of tons rather than tens of tons. So then they take ownership of the resource without necessarily ownership of the asset. We need to be talking about, again, shared ownership here, not just 
here's a throwaway 10 pounds per ton of carbon 20 pounds per ton of carbon for you as a community to use that's that's the way we shouldn't be doing things oh, well, and, and the, the public sector came up again you know last night so it was again initially it was this dichotomy corporation on the one hand community on the other but one of the questions from the floor um, spot on what's the role of the public sector here and, and dave ray's comments were were were, were spot on so I'll tell you, Andrew's question about public-private kind of is, is partnership on this. And that, that's kind of got to happen just in terms of the private sector is responsible for a lot of emissions. They've got a lot of progress to make, uh, um, as I was talking about earlier, in terms of reducing those. The public bodies across Scotland and public agencies, some of them are quite large landowners, and actually, that partnership could be really effective, not just in terms of investment, but in terms of the safeguarding and actually showing how this works with, with communities. I'd also say for some of our public, public bodies, so um, Scottish Water, a good example, where they're, they're kind of everywhere in Scotland. They are um, a significant landowner, but they also have a lot of tenant farmers. They have a lot of the... They, they're asking, they're looking, they, they've got a 2040 target for net zero and they've got to deliver on that. And one of the really good things I think they're doing is saying, well, how do we do this? And actually asking the questions like we're asking tonight for their actual, um, their community that actually uses their land. And so learning from them uh, and people like them, the National Parks is another example where you've got these real matrix of different land users, different communities, different I guess, um, yeah, it's not just the natural capital, but it's the human capital and, you know, actually coming up with something which is well-rounded and place-based, that kind of expertise that we've got in Scotland and the kind of progress and mistakes we've made, they are things which we need to have more of and learn from and do Scotland-wide, but they are the same questions being asked of every metre squared on this planet in terms of uh, land surface. And so where we can get it wrong and tell people we've got it wrong, in terms of the past or the present, but also where we've got it right, there's that comes back to that opportunity at COP26, which the politicians were great at talking about. Which is in Scotland, you've got you've got a, a small nation which is is got very ambitious climate targets, which it's really struggling to meet, and it's making lots of mistakes. And one of the best things we can do is share those mistakes and share our learning. Um, so that's. Going back to your question, Andrew, about public-private, I think the, the lessons from that can be great at home, but actually internationally as well. And also many of these, these public bodies or uh, you know, non-departmental public bodies, they, they have a, a raft of responsibilities. I mean, they, they tend, again, I'm really generalising here, but tend to have a, a deeper and broader set of responsibilities uh, you know, around CSR and social, environmental economic responsibilities. So they seem like the, the the natural party to bring in here when we're talking about these offsetting schemes. Is this something that sparked any thoughts when you when you heard that? Yeah. There's a couple of different thoughts here. The first of which is we're going through a climate crisis. We're going through a biodiversity crisis. Climate change arguably the biggest challenge we face as humanity this century, last century, going back. Why on earth is the government not even considering nationalising areas of land? We nationalised huge amounts of land in the post-war period for Forestry Land Scotland, then the Forestry Commission. 
the biggest threat facing humanity and the government is not even thinking about nationalisation of land. I'm not a huge fan of thinking about nationalisation of land. I don't really want my estate being owned by absentee government ministers in Edinburgh. I would much rather it be owned by the community. But I would much prefer those government ministers in Edinburgh own the land than Aviva Pension Fund or Standard Life or Brewdog. I would much rather that. And I would actually find that that the state could then facilitate the movement or the transfer of the ownership of that land to me and my neighbours, my friends and colleagues as a community. So the state has a big role here. But then when it comes to public finance, there's two lines of thoughts here. And I'll, I kind of... I do agree that the, the public sector and the private sector need to work together here. Other people say that we're actually overblowing the role of the private sector in this. And again, I think that's an interesting argument to make, but there needs to be private sector investment here, um, It's my, in my opinion. But what we, we, we need to think about when it comes to public funding as well is the whole structure of this. So we just throw in public funding like a sticking plaster on a broken leg when the broken leg is our concentrated land market, for example, we need to deal with some of these structural issues so that when we're throwing public money at this, we're not then just channeling public money into a very few small number of private owners, as is the case with our current scale of concentrated land ownership. Something that we're talking about a lot in this is the distribution of benefits naturally. You can see how that that ties in with community ownership and stuff. But in terms of ownership, for you, is there is there an added importance in who owns the land in terms of actually meeting those climate goals, in terms of actually stewarding it for what we're supposed to be using it for within this conversation? Yeah, and this is where we come back to the voluntary carbon offset market, compliance market, and the unregulated nature, which I think was alluded to last night, and the need to regulate more in that Anyone and anyone can currently come by land to restore peatlands, plant woodlands, forestry to offset carbon. It could be shale, it could be brewdog. And it comes back to this discussion whereby what are they offsetting? Is it Waitrose offsetting tailpipe emission from diesel vans? That's ridiculous. We should be looking at owners, and again, this is where it comes back to regulation of the voluntary markets, who are, and it was again said last night, have already looked at scope one emissions, scope two emissions, scope three emissions before they're even coming to the table to discuss offsets. There's other things that we can do. We can look at more collaborative models of ownership. So actually bringing different types of owners together to acquire land and to share some of the benefits and risks of this. And that can be communities with private owners or communities with NGOs. I think we do need regulation in the market, in the carbon market, and I've already mentioned in the land market, and an opportunity to correct now at the start what's happening rather than let it completely run away with itself and then try to catch up. Yeah, so there's this, I mean, regulation came up time and time again, and I was actually, that, that was one of the, the areas where there was strong agreement across the board. Uh, I was rather surprised by that, but but pleasantly. There's a regulation there on the individual buying, you know, to ensure that they've done everything they can, that these are residual emissions. These are really, really hard. Uh, obviously, the word impossible is not appropriate here, but these are extremely difficult and or costly to do. So do all that stuff first and then come back. Don't this is not the, the offsetting, the, the the hoovering up of land or investing in another land uh, owner's patch. That's not the first thing you should be doing. 
and of course land is finite right we this is a finite resource and if you've got people jumping in and using this as their, their sort of go-to their first resort and we're already seeing that land prices are escalating they are ramping up fantastic piece of work from the Scottish Land Commission there which was referenced last night um I think 60 percent the 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 price in rural land in Scotland had gone up in the last year 60 percent so I mean you 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 live Magnus in the heart of of, of this, this this these this landscape right are you seeing this are you are you already hearing and feeling and seeing this offsetting market making an impact on the ground yeah, I live in the far north of Scotland um, here in Caithness. My neighbouring county, we have Scotland's largest private landowner who is a green layer, Anders Polson. Um, he's been buying up huge tracts of land and his 100,000 acres, pretty much half of his land holdings um, up here in Sutherland. I wrote a column for a newspaper on Wednesday where I described driving down the A9 and seeing the new deer fence on the pock marks of new tree planting on an estate which received millions and millions of pounds of public money via Forestry Land Scotland uh, grants to, to plant predominantly native trees. It's just been sold in an off-market sale. Secret community had no chance of buying that, arguably. The, the new owner will have quite an interest in the offsetting uh, ability of those trees that are being planted. Here in the north of Scotland, we are uh, we have the flow country, Europe's, uh, Europe's largest blanket bog. The peatland carbon code has not matured well enough yet that it is a, um, a good source of income. When it does mature further, we're going to see, I think, uh, a, a, a lot more people moving into this area. The likes of the standard lives, the Viva, who are currently in the central highlands where you get this charismatic carbon from being in the national park, from woodland carbon codes. I think in the next five or so years, we're going to see a big shift. So we're, yeah, we've seen the trophy green nerds move in, like Anders Polson. We're going to see the corporate offsetters moving in, moving in soon. So you're, you're seeing that example you gave and this came up from from uh, Elsa Rayburn as well last night about subsidies public subsidies which we're, we're all paying for in some form or another going into sequestration maybe the example you gave was a forestation to, to lock up carbon there and then these these tracts of land are then being sold on the open market privately and and these landowners are profiting from these projects, which would not have otherwise happened without subsidy. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. Local people, you know, that might be individual farmers or individual purchasers, as well as communities, can't get a foot in the door. And they're not able to share in that wealth that's being created. And it concentrates these new forms of income and wealth in the hands of the already wealthy and powerful. And also it's channeling even more public subsidy into these hands, which I personally find particularly galling. There was a really interesting report last year by Aquaterra that showed that community-owned renewables generates 34 times more income and wealth for the local community. So when you're looking at the really important principle of community wealth building, which the Scottish Government is, is subscribing to, that's absolutely the best way of bringing wealth into that community and stopping it being extracted. And it's not surprising. We see it when it comes to, I don't know, building houses. People buy plots of land, get planning permission, and then sell them for a profit because it's got that. And it's somewhat relatable. But absolutely, there's a various aspects here. 
if you dig into the books of some landowners, the income that they see from the estate is speculation on the land price. For other people, it is getting the um, public funding agreed to plant the trees. For other people, it's planting the trees. Huge rise in land prices that we're seeing, 120% for Highland estates alone over the last year, albeit it's a, over one year and a fairly um, limited market at the minute. But yeah, it's it, it's obscene. <laughs> Another point that came up last night, and I'd really like to get your take on this, uh, from, from Stephen Young at the Scottish Land Estates. What one I one I agreed with actually was that we can't we can't have a myopic focus on carbon emissions reductions. These landscapes, this this land must perform multiple functions. And and he was right, I think, my personal view, he was right in saying that actually these these tracts of land are probably under or they're under mounting pressure to do more things than they than they otherwise would. There's a huge amount of pressure coming onto land right now. We've got um, you know you know pressure to, to deal with environmental issues, sequester carbon. We've got pressure to produce affordable nutrition. We've got pressure to create jobs, create affordable housing, and have that rural economy keep that moving. We've also um, got to provide amenity, which everyone's enjoyed over the past couple of years more than they than they thought they ever would. So I mean. My analogy of it, which is, is usually pretty poor, is, uh, is it's almost like a Rubik's Cube. And then we have to get all these things moving together to create success. And, and what we have sometimes is, is different people trying to line up different colours. And what you do is if you only come at it from one angle, you wreck everything else. So I, I think we have to be really careful not to judge success in land management through a single metric, which currently is net zero. And, and arguably it is doing more, more harm than good in, in some places as well. His point there was we need measurements or metrics that account for this, that are sensitive to the fact that it's not just emissions, there must be other measures of success. So I don't know if I put this a bit, bit of a tough, tough question, you didn't especially have an answer, but what kind of measures should we be looking at here? This is the exact question we're going to have to be asking ourselves as a nation in this parliamentary term when it comes to the new land reform bill and the inclusion of public interest tests. What's in the public interest for that piece of land? Mm. Sure, carbon um, savings, carbon sequestration, carbon storage, biodiversity. And a lot of discussion around public interest when it comes to public interest test legislation sits around environmental issues. But we also need to be talking about social, cultural issues. Is this land used for population retention, food, is it used for other natural capital? Is it used for water services, for example, when it comes to peatland? So it's a really interesting question around public interest. What the, the element I always pull out here is the, the fourth pillar of sustainability, culture. Culture is the most interesting aspect when it comes to land. Mm. And culture is where all good plans are going to come down and fall and face the biggest hurdle. Let's take, for example, the gamekeeper. The gamekeeper, you could ask a gamekeeper to shift into a new job that pays the same, if not more, money, that uh, hits environmental aspects, keeps them socially in the job in the area. But many of those gamekeepers will turn around and say, I'm not becoming a tour guide that takes people out to look at deer and to look at through binoculars because it lacks a cultural element to their job. They enjoy the cultural element of the job. I think, was it um, 
Professor Ray DeVries. It's also also part of their identity, Magnus. Identity, you know? I mean, I say yeah. parts for, for some, for, not gamekeepers yeah, specifically, yeah. but for some people it is their identity. Absolutely. And we all yeah, their job. identify with the communities uh, that we come from, whether or not it's in an urban community, whether or not it's a rural, suburban, different geographies. But to go back to the cultural element, um, Dave Ray's comments around sheep were so interesting because he is an academic turned practitioner coming into an area had quite interesting and set ways or how he perceived sheep. But having spent some time in the area and then talking with his neighbours and the really nice, he said something really nice was he wants to keep them happy because they're going to be his neighbours for the rest of his days. And that changed his view on the cultural view of what that land is there for and there for his neighbours and there for his tenant. I thought that was really, really interesting as well. And so actually working with the community and, and obviously we, me and my wife have got a real vested interest because these are going to be our neighbours for the rest of our lives. So really alienating them would be a bad idea. But actually I've learned a huge amount just by talking to them. They really understand how the land has been used, what trees are going to grow well, where, who's gone got it wrong down the road. Um, and actually, in in the way we're going to use ours, I've gone from thinking, right, no sheep, you know, just get rid of them. It's got to be all about nature. So there are bits of our land where we're going to have to have sheep to graze. We've got some archaeology, which is really hard to keep clear. You know, I'd have to go and mow it, and that, that would be disastrous. I'd probably damage it with a strimmer. And so we talked to the archaeologist, and he said, well, get the farmer to come in, just graze it on a regular basis. So instead of... I've I have to be honest, I've moved from being quite anti-sheep to being, you know, not pro-sheep, but I could, they are part. <laughs> they are part of our of our ecosystem and our human ecosystem in Kintyre, as well as the, the kind of food system. And so it's been really eye-opening. It continues to be. I still make them all laugh whenever I talk about it. <laughs> you are us tonight as well, so thank you. And as a proponent of getting people, particularly academics, into communities that they're trying to enact change on, to discuss, Fraser, you do this the whole time, you talk about this the whole time. That was a really nice example of getting what could be at times considered a lofty academic into a community, talking with the people in the area where they would like to see change enacted. I think it's so important. It's Yeah, you'll get no resistance on this side of it. And I think Dave's example is a really, really cool one. He takes students out as well. It's something that we should all do a little local zero trip to. One thing that I think is interesting that you picked up on that it's a big debate happening in Scotland just now is around that public interest test, which is going to be a, a really interesting thing just in general, something that we all should be paying a lot more attention to, I would argue. For you, how should we go about that? How do you determine with something like Offset what is in the public interest, with something like land, what is in the public interest? Who gets to feed into that? It's a tricky one where I think it'll take somebody um, way smarter than me or and a huge amount more people way smarter than me to bat these <laughs> ideas back and forth. You can't get an answer from this from one person. It needs to be democratic consensus. But I'll almost flip the question on its head and say it doesn't really matter what that public interest test is and how it's applied, so long as you can use it as a useful backstop, like Ailsa alluded to community right to buy legislation. Arguably, it would be really nice if it was really good legislation. It just needs to be good enough legislation that it scares the landlord into being good. 
a lot of discussion around um, the proposals for compulsory purchase if they fail to meet that public interest test. But it's there largely, it would cost a lot of money, but largely not to regulate them, but for fear of not regulating that they face compulsory purchase. There's interesting questions here around public interest tests and what size of land holdings should be applied, whether or not there should be any exemptions. And that debate's only just starting. Um, and we probably all have different opinions of what's in the public interest. The main thing for me is saying that public interest is more than just environment. It takes into account social, cultural, intellectual aspects too. Yeah. Fundamentally, Magnus, uh, just entirely disappointed that you didn't solve the whole issue in that one answer there in one go. But if that's your path. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I can see you've got something you're burning to ask in the notes there. Yeah. Well, I, it's, again, just, just on... Um, on the public interest point, we hear this all the time, right? On on the news and the papers, it's in the public interest. The point that came up from Stephen Young last night was, um, well, who is the public? Mm. So are we talking little public? Are we talking the community here? You know, the immediate public? Or are we talking big public? I am paraphrasing what he said. It's much more eloquently than I did. Um, <laughs> you know, are we talking big public? Are we talking like everybody? Okay, who is everybody? Is that is that the whole region? Is that the whole country? Is that, you know, where do we stop? And the theme of public interest, who decides what's in the public interest? You know, arguably a, a large Sitka plantation, which is which is meeting government targets, which is attracting public funding, is in the public wider public interest because it's doing a lot of the things that we want it to do. In terms of locally, again, if that local group is not clear and are not in a, in a full agreement as to what they want, who then decides whether you? pass or fail, for want of a better word, that public interest test. So that's one of those, you know, who is the public in that respect? Is it big public? Is it little public? And then how do we come to agreement and who gets to make that that judgment? And there's so many variables within that and so many different things. And there'll be so many demands on that, which could be problematic. So, you know, tackling climate change is in the public interest, every, the entire public planet Earth. In the public interest, it'll be very interesting to see how this, this this plays out. That's a really interesting point. Let's take the public as being the population of Scotland. And let's consider that more than 50% of Scotland live within something like 10 miles of the M8. And then we're focusing on issues here that focus predominantly on rural communities. Is there a way here where we will see things done in the public interest which will actually negatively impact individual communities? Or are we going to be able to understand this well enough that, for example, some community interests may come above national interests, understanding how skewed population is within this country towards urban centres? So yeah, it's a really interesting question. And whether or not some communities or some people or some sections in society should get for example, special treatment. And this is a debate that goes on in the environmental sector, which is really interesting. Some people fundamentally say not. Other people say, yes, we actually have groups of people who should be protected. And we see this um, elsewhere in the world. Um, but it's not a debate that, 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 that's as mature here in Scotland. Um, and you can see synergies here, comparisons as well with other aspects. So debate around Gaelic as well that we have in Scotland whether some communities should be protected beyond other communities, whether some communities need special treatment here. Um, absolutely. And another common theme from last night, which came up time and time again, actually there was a bit of a, 
bit of a disagreement um, was around community capability. Now we hear this a lot, Fraser, you're involved with the community energy group. So am I, you start to see what it takes in terms of capability within that group who are leading it, but also within the wider community to make stuff happen. And the same is true, no, for offsetting in terms of natural capital and doing something different with that land. I mean, the, the example of deer management came up, maybe, I mean, it is it absolutely is relevant, it felt a bit niche, but Magnus, community capabilities, are communities capable of offsetting in a responsible and effective manner? And and if the answer's maybe or, or no, how can we tool them up? Um, depends what community as well. There was discussion last night around communities of interest compared to geographic communities. But yeah, I would say communities absolutely can. And this, if we're alluding to Scottish Land Commission reports, um, they did a report, and I think I'm correct in saying it was from this report, on concentration and scale of land ownership. And they said for environmental restoration is at a landscape level, doesn't need to be underpinned by large-scale land ownership. So we can, and we see things like Cairngorms Connect, for example, multiple landowners coming together and, and restoring on a landscape um, scale level. What's interesting, I was speaking with a... I'll call it a quasi-community-owned um, piece of land. It was a crofter's estate. And I was speaking to a lady heavily involved there, and they, um, they, they, they've they owned their estate for, I don't know, what, 30 years, maybe a bit less. And she was saying they arguably would have to think twice about taking that estate on because the population has aged so much and the young people have moved out of that area, they potentially wouldn't have that community capacity to take on the ownership of that asset. That's a really sad thing to hear, that there's probably communities out there now, if they'd been around 30 years ago and had this opportunity, they would be taking ownership of assets. They arguably aren't now. When it comes to the, the, the community aspect, the, the, the ability to offset, I would say, comes back to ownership, whether or not they have ownership of that asset, ownership of that resource, as we've already alluded to, or whether there's opportunities for shared ownership there. So absolutely communities can offset. Do communities have access to the lands to be able to offset? Arguably not. So there are, there are maybe there have been people within the community there before who might have wanted to benefit from offsetting, but something that, that you've been huge on, Magnus, is the, the way that offsetting is moving now as having this huge cultural impact as effectively being a form of a form of clearance, another form of clearance in Scotland. Could you expand on that a bit for, for the listeners? So clearance is a term that's been banded about a lot more these days. And for those that don't know, clearance alludes to the Highland clearances, an episode in history largely between 1750-1860, where the tenantry and the peasantry of the land were evicted, cleared from the land by the landowners. Um, who at many times just um, cleared them to the coast. A lot of emigration, it was at times uh, very violent, and people died from association um, with the, the clearances. What's happening today is not those violent clearances of 200 years ago. And I'm at times reluctant to use the word clearance when it comes to aspects uh, of Highland society. So, for example, people will talk around, I don't know, um, a school closing. It's another Highland clearances. 
wind farms being built here in Caithness, meaning that people don't want to live here because of the views being spoiled. Another form of Highland clearances. That is just a horrible use of language. But the similarities when it comes to this land use change, offsetting, land use, uh, rewilding, for example, are close enough that I think it's fair to use this term so long as we caveat it with with understanding um, that it doesn't equal violent evictions. We have, when it's safe, it comes to crofting, we have a lot of very good land reform legislation in place that's arguably, what, 130, 140 years old. That means we can't see clearances like that take place in, for example, crofting communities. But what we are seeing, and there's a lot more of this um, coming to, to, to discussion, is when it comes to, say, tenant farmers, their leases not being renewed because the landowner wants to plant trees on that farm. What we talk about these days as well is the form of economic clearance, particularly in respect to young people. So what we mean here is whereby the economy in a local area is transformed so much that it becomes economically unviable for people to live in the area anymore. So a form of economic clearance, whether or not that's holiday homes, second second homes or um, house prices. But there's a real fear here that if we look to our rural areas as only being areas for offsetting, or we look in parallel as our areas for rewilding or as areas for ecotourism, we become or we make it economically unviable to continue to live in that area. So we have two forms of clearance here when it comes to offsetting. The likes when it comes to tenant farmers being evicted or not having leases renewed because of wanting to plant trees or when it comes to this form of economic clearance. What I do find particularly interesting is that this terminology has been adopted by the landed sector, or particularly, for example, we've talked about gamekeepers a lot today. Gamekeepers, the landed sector, using this terminology, um, which is really interesting when we consider the origins of the landed estates, grouse, deer, um, coming from the, the clearance of land for people. The last thing on this is that the real risk here maybe isn't the direct clearance of people or economic clearance of people. For me, it's the exacerbation of cleared landscapes. We look at these landscapes, which were historically peopled for thousands of years, that have been historically deep peopled for a couple of hundred years. And we have this term in ecology, shifting baseline syndrome, whereby um, that you're born today and you look at what's out uh, in your lifetime and you take that as normal and don't understand that it's incredibly degraded. It's the same when it comes to social aspects here. We look out at land in the highlands that has been historically peopled and is now depeopled and we think that's normal and we think that that's a fine place to restore the environment, to plant trees, to restore peatlands. That's all fine and well but we should be talking about restoring people to these landscapes as well and not using offsetting, not using green lairdism as an excuse to exacerbate these depeopled and socially unjust landscapes. Right, Magnus, no pressure. One more term for you to clear up before we finish. <laughs> Last night I got scolded for using the term green laird in the title, although I have to say enough people turned up that it, it kind of did the job, but uh, that quite rightly scolded that it is this this probably isn't a helpful term or even a constructive term. In fact, the, 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 it was described as a pejorative term. 
We can also really problematize this language of green lairds. I don't think the word green is provocative in that setting. I think the word lairds is. And that really gets to the notion of this as being a land reform debate, not just an environmental one. And that's a much bigger, broader piece of Scottish context that we need to remember and discuss and to consider whether we're using the right language in fostering a healthy and reasonable debate. I also really worry, as the other panellists have mentioned, that this is something that's increasingly polarised. There's a them versus us, there's a corporate versus others, but I think that that hides and doesn't do justice to a wide spectrum of um, different ranges of operation within um, that dualism. What are your thoughts? You know, should we... Is it, is it correct? Green Lairds is a brilliant term. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> <laughs> it raises the issue, it's prerogative, yes. It gets us talking about this. It gets us talking about land ownership. It gets us talking about land use change. It gets us talking about, hey, actually a landowner coming in and doing all this green work could be good, but the prerogative nature makes us question, is it actually good work when it comes to social, cultural, economic aspects? Brilliant. Anybody who doesn't like the term green lairds probably needs to start asking them questions. Why don't we like green lairds? Is it because it's targeted at us? And why do we need to do better? And there's loads of green lairds that absolutely hate the term. And I think that's a very good thing if it gets them to start questioning what they need to be doing better. And Kirsten alluded last night, the, 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 the aspect, the negative aspects, absolutely not with green, it's with Lairds. And I think that raises a really interesting point mm -hmm. that the negative aspect here comes from land ownership and not green practices. That sits quite comfortably with me. Right. Well, you've, you've put the world to rights there and, and thank you for doing so. Uh, Magnus, it's been an absolute pleasure as ever. Uh, open invite. I hope you come back uh, soon. But until then, thanks for your time. See you soon. Absolutely brilliant to be here. Thank you so much for having me and I cannot wait to come back. You've been listening to Local Zero. Thanks again to our guest, Magnus Davidson, and to everyone we've heard from in this fantastic bumper episode. Special thanks to the University of Edinburgh and the British Institute of Energy Economics for allowing us to use clips of the event. And don't forget, we've also uploaded the whole unedited recording from last night into the Local Zero podcast feed. You'll find that right next to this episode in your podcast player. And as ever, if you haven't already, go and find and please do follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with discussions over there. Also, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. If you're enjoying Local Zero, please also be sure to leave us a review. It really does help us massively in promoting the podcast and all of the, the work that we and our guests are trying to do. But until next time, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.